Do you lie? Well, most people do, but yet they don't know the value of the price of it. In fact, the Chazonish has told us that lies are not only forsaken, forbidden, but they're considered even an abomination in the eyes of God. Yet we see inside the Torah, we see that Yaakov Avinu technically lied. On the other hand, we see certain stories in the Gemara where sages lied and at times they got punished and at times they didn't. What makes a lie permissible? What makes a lie forbidden? Can you lie in business? Can you lie to make some money? Can you make a lie just to make somebody happy? What if you lied, but technically it's lying to a non-Jew? Can you take advantage of that? What if he signed the form and you made some money and it's his problem that he didn't realize that you're lying or you're cheating or anything like that? Can you do that? Can you take advantage of that? This and much more, including a story, personal story of somebody that I know that had a small, tiny lie. What was the lie? Well, he had a few girlfriends aside from his wife, and he was extraordinarily wealthy. I'm going to tell you the story of what happened with this tiny little lie that has a few surprises. Enjoy the truth. Enjoy learning about lies. And most importantly, enjoy the path to be holy. בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים, שבוע טוב, שבוע מבורך to everybody. We're starting a new week, we're starting a, uh, another lecture, and it's part of the series based on the uh, book by uh, the Chazonish, Alav HaShalom, Emunah uh, and Bitachon, but this series is a lot more than just Emunah and Bitachon. Uh, it's uh, about Jewish Ashkafa, what is the right ideology for Jewish people, and uh, quite frankly for mankind altogether, uh, there's certainly lessons to be learned. Uh, tonight's shiur is going to be for the Refuah Shlema for Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, uh, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit uh, Levana Bat Sarah, Avi Mori Davi Ben Esriah, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora. And that's Lacharaba for all of Am Yisrael, all the righteous Noahides that continue to support us, continue to watch our lectures, most importantly, and continue to uh, dedicate part of their lives to uh, learning Torah with us. Baruch Hashem. Uh, just as a uh, brief update, as we always do, to, to remind you, the Kiruv store uh, that we have is uh, still up and running and uh, at full force. We had quite a few orders go through over the last few days. And uh, there's still a lot of stuff uh, left that we just got in, actually. Uh, for anyone that wants to distribute free Kiruv material to their you know, community here in the United States, uh, there is uh, some new uh, uh, DVDs. Uh, for anyone that needs chizuk in regards to the issues of uh, family purity and the mikveh, uh, there's of course uh, our uh, USBs, uh, different types, Baruch uh, Hashem. There's also the books, my book, Rabbi Ephraim's book, uh, different books that we have, those are only in Hebrew, but the uh, rest of the stuff I mentioned is in English. Uh, actually, the DVDs in uh, Russian and Spanish as well. Uh, and also, the, uh, the best thing that I think... Uh, uh, that could help people uh, more than anything else, uh, for, for the least amount of money at least, uh, is the, uh, the cards. These Kiruv cards, Baruch Hashem, have uh, reached a lot of places. In fact, uh, just Motzei uh, Shabbat, uh, last night, I, uh, somebody sent me a, uh, a video that somebody made, uh, somebody that's in the jewelry industry uh, in New York, and he was talking to somebody else about making a sale about something to watch, but it's a, you know, it's a short 30 or 40 second video, but you see on the table of this, uh, uh, of this guy is actually one of these cards, one of these Kiruv cards, Baruch Hashem. 
So you see, Baruch Hashem, that they're getting out there. They're going everywhere. Anyone that wants to distribute these cards uh, can do it literally for free. We even pay for shipping. Anyone that wants to support, wants to uh, become a partner in all of this, can uh, certainly donate on our website, bhtorah.org or bezratashem.org on the website that's the Kiruv store, which is kiruvstore.org. You could order stuff for free, you could uh, donate, or you could just simply uh, look at it and do nothing. Uh, either way, there's lots to do, and Bezot Hashem, we're going to start. Uh, so the Chazonish started a new section in uh, last week's Shiur, uh, in chapter 4, section 14, discussing the issues of lies. Simply put, lying. People have found themselves in a, uh, or section 13, I should say, uh, found themselves in a situation where they hear the roar of the Chazonish letting us know of how bad lies are. Uh, and we've all known that lies are not good. We've all known that lies are certainly uh, not a good character trait for anyone to have. But as the Chazonish puts it in the uh, words of the sages, it's rotten. Lies are rotten. And there's no uh, uh, permission to lie, you know, just because you want to make somebody feel good or just because you want to... Uh, uh, impress someone, and we went into it. We went into it, and really, we found that there is a small permission. There is a small permission, which we'll elaborate on today a little bit. But for the uh, generally speaking, their lies are rotten, lies are horrible, and lies are something that a person needs to stay away from. Now, just to uh, freshen up some of our, uh, you know, some of our memories. He let us know that out of all the things that the sages discussed in the Torah, generally speaking, you'll find anyone that has actually spent time learning Torah, started, uh, you know, gone through the Shas, gone through the Shulchan Aruch, gone through the, uh, the words of the sages in different Sfarim, you'll find that the sages are constantly looking to find schut for Am Yisrael. They're constantly trying to find different ways to not only find merits for Am Yisrael, but find ways for... The, uh, the Torah to become easier for Am Yisrael to follow. But when it came to the issue of lies, the Chazonish says it clearly. This is one particular topic that the sages were very stringent about because the signature of God is emit, is truth. And therefore, uh, uh, the thing of lies you have to stay away from. That's what the Torah says. Midvar sheker tichak. Unlike all of the other sins where the Torah says, don't do this and don't do that, don't eat pig, don't kill anybody, don't violate Shabbat. When it comes to the issues of lying, it says, Midvar Sheker Tichak, which is from a thing of lies, stay away from. Meaning, it's not only stay away from lying, not only don't lie yourself, but also stay away from anything that has to do with lies. If your business is a business of liars, if your group of friends are a group of liars. If there are people that are simply a part of your life, they're liars, you have to do whatever you can to stay away from these people and these things, lest you become like them. And this is one of the things that we've heard many times in the Torah, that the signature of God is emit. Where is this really? If a person looks into the Torah, you will find anything you possibly want. But if something is said to be the signature the signature, that's something that is not, it's not going to do it if we say, listen, there's a verse somewhere that says that the signature of God is truth. That certainly is good enough, but we want a little more. We're a little spoiled. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoiled us, and he told us that since his signature 
is truth, he had to have put it in the first parasha, in the Torah, in fact, even in the first verse. Everyone knows the verse, first verse of the Torah is Bereshit bara Elohim et HaShamayim ve'et Ha'aretz. This is a very simple verse to remember. In the beginning of God's creating the heaven and the earth. This is the beginning. Now, the Ramban says, what does it mean in the beginning? There's multiple uh, commentaries on it. In the beginning, meaning when Hashem created time, the concept of time, because He is beyond time. But even more so, the Ramban says, with wisdom. The beginning is, Bereshit means, the uh, with wisdom. Other sages elaborate on it even further, that He created the world for the sake of Am Yisrael, to be able to fulfill the mitzvot. Not because He needs it, but because it's a good thing to do. He is good, and therefore, He creates good. Unfortunately, today, people think that just like you do something out of need, therefore your God also does things out of need. In essence, humanizing God, which is one of the oldest forms of idolatry that exists. Humanizing God is something that's existed in the world since the beginning of time. And unfortunately, it is very common in the world today, especially in the world of Judaism that comes from people that call themselves Hasidim. Now, this is a, not something that's common in Hasidut uh, uh, Breslev or Hasidut Bobov or Hasidut Satmer or all of the old Hasidut. This is something that's found today in Hasidut Chabad, unfortunately. Not all of Hasidut Chabad, but Hasidut Chabad that is dominated by the uh, Manus Friedmans of the world that tell you that anything that uh, you do, you need to do it. And therefore, anything that God does, he needs to do it. This is certainly a lie we have to constantly remind you about until it's removed from the world because this is our form of defense. Now, to go back to the signature of truth, where is the signature in this verse that God created the world with wisdom, God created the world for the sake of Am Yisrael? Where is it? The first three verse. The first three words, Bereshit bara Elokim. The last word, the last uh, letter of each one of those words spelled the word emet. Bereshit ends with the letter taf. Elohim ends with the word mem, with the letter mem. And uh, the uh, word uh, bara ends with the word, with the letter aleph. So aleph, mem, taf spells the word emet. So here we see that Akadosh Baruch Hu made sure that we know that his signature is truth. And this is also why in the Gemara, Kadosh Baruch Hu says to the angel that's responsible for lying, that uh, to, be, uh, to go away from him, because he cannot be in a place of lies. And this is one of the, one of the things that the uh, Chazonish brings today. It's the Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin. So first and foremost, we see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu detests lies, because it's literally the polar opposite of God is not just idolatry, but it's lies, which is what another name for idolatry. Idolatry is constantly referred to as a thing of lies. So the Chazonish uh, has made sure that we know that lies are disgusting, that we know that lies are forbidden. And anyone that has made lies their business, and in so many words has made lies one of the things that they are have become accustomed to do on a regular basis, so much so that they've forgotten the truth, they have to know that there is a significant price for those lies. One of those prices is the fact that you cannot connect to God because God does not connect to anything of lies. So the sages were very stringent about this issue and 
Then the Chazonish elaborates, is it just big lies like Christianity, Catholicism, all other forms of idolatry, uh, the heresy of Islam? Is it lies like, uh, you know, the... uh, uh, you know, that the government always wants for your benefit? Is it, is it lies like uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the things that people say like, oh, you don't have to pay taxes, it's okay. I have something that I found on the internet. What, is, is that the only form of lies that are really bad? Or are even small lies bad? And the Chazonish elaborates and says, any deviation from the truth in our speech is a lie. And therefore forbidden in so many words big lies small lies and in fact he even clarifies even if the lie is not for the sake of taking advantage of another person and deceiving them let's say to take money from them or or to win something from them even if there's no benefit in it whatsoever you know what people call sometimes white lie you know, like, for example, somebody's embarrassed to tell people that, uh, you know, he doesn't have any money and he pretends to be rich. You know, which is a very common thing today. People that go on the internet, they pretend to be rich. They buy a bunch of fake jewelry from some dollar store. They uh, take a picture next to some somebody else's fancy car uh, and they pretend to be rich and they think that this is going to make them more famous. Unfortunately, they're right. Many times it does make them famous, but eventually that lie comes out that they really don't own the car and it's really somebody else's house and the jewelry is fake and so on and so forth. So a thing of lies is disgusting to Hashem, but one of the things that we see the Gemara says in Masichet Shabbat is that unlike truth that has two legs, has a foundation, lies only has a single leg. What does that mean? If you look at the spelling of the word lie in Hebrew, it's shekel, shin, kuf, resh. Now, the way that the the letters are drawn is that you have the shin is standing on a single leg. It's a pointy letter. The kuf has a long line. That's, in essence, the bottom of it, meaning it's standing on a single leg. And resh also has a single leg. I, I wish... I would have had to see the Shmaya to actually draw this for you guys and you could see it. But anyone that knows Hebrew knows exactly what I'm talking about. You could just look up the word Shekel on the internet or lie in Hebrew. Now, you'll see that each letter is standing on a single letter. On the other hand, the word Emet, which stands for truth, means truth, stands on a foundation, either two legs or an entire flat foundation. Aleph, the letter Aleph has two legs. Mem has a complete bottom, like a flat bottom, and Taf has two legs. So you see that the word Emet has a foundation, has something to stand on, whereas Lies has a single leg to stand on. And the sages teach us from the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the holy language, that a thing of Lies only has one leg to stand on. What is this one leg to stand on? What can we learn from it? Number one, you need to learn from it that eventually it's going to fall. It's not as stable. But two, you need to know that if it's enough to be a shekel, that means it has something to stand on, meaning it has some element of truth to it in order for it to exist. Because if it was complete fabrication, it simply could not exist at all. Meaning that the the biggest lies that you see in society today are the ones that typically have some element of truth to them. 
And that's usually the defense for the people that are defending the lies after they're exposed. Oh, well, I meant this and I meant that and it has some truth in it. I didn't completely lie and all types of other things. So now a person needs to understand that a, uh, a person that is, a, uh, uh, is lying, if he's, if he's completely making something up out of thin air, that lie is simply not going to last even the conversation. If he is a uh, uh, lying with some element of truth, that lie is going to stand to a certain extent. The, uh, the I'm sorry, but the Twitter thing is actually driving me crazy. It's whoever is on the other end is talking, and I can hear him. Okay, so the um, We'll try that. Okay, so when it comes to lying, the Torah speaks about it extensively. The sages are very stringent, very strict about it, very big warnings about it. In fact, the uh, the topic of truth is very common in the Torah. And the Chazonish takes us on a journey to understand, first and foremost, the ramification of a lie. He says that the prophet Micha. Chapter 7, verse 20 says, Titen emet li Yaakov. Give truth to Yaakov. Truth is stand is another, uh, it's a synonym for Torah. If a person wants to teach Torah that's going to last beyond his own speech, beyond his own lifetime, it must be a Torah of truth. One of the things that you will see in the world today, unfortunately, that there's a lot of people that are creating a new truth, creating all types of fabrications. And sometimes people ask me, are, are we worried about the next generation? Maybe they're not going to have the truth available to them. You have nothing to worry about. And the reason why is because if you look at the books in the Jewish, from the Jewish world, from previous generations in the world of Torah, you'll see that the only words that survived are the ones of truth. The words of Rav Wasserman, the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Akiva Iger, the Gaon Mivilna, Rabbi Chaim Ivolozhin, Rabbi Nachman Mibreslev, you know, the, the Talmud, uh, all, of the, all of the great sages of Hasidut, all of the great sages of the, of the uh, Mishnah, all of this lasted, all of this survived, all of the pogroms and the Inquisitions and the Holocaust, despite all of the nightmares, the words of truth survived. Despite being burned, they survived. Despite having a lot of Erev uh, Rav, uh, anti-Torah people fighting against it, they survived. And yet, the words of the liars, the words of the heretics from the Enlightenment movement, from, uh, from all types of uh, anti-Torah types of uh, places, those words have not survived. You can rarely find a, uh, uh, anything of value from those people because you know heresy didn't just start today heresy is not uh, uh something new we are already from a time of uh moshe rabbeinu we had people go against him we had korach we had uh, uh datan ve'aviram go against him certainly at the time of the talmud there are many heretic the sadducees the batchesees we had many people going against the torah unfortunately joining the uh um the greeks and the romans and doing whatever they could to distort the Torah, even though they were born Jewish. So, all of those books, you can't find them. 
Once in a blue moon, people find some piece of paper here and there, and they want to call it some type of uh, something of value. But in reality, you don't find their books. You don't find the books of the uh, uh, of the heretics of the previous generation becoming the best sellers anywhere today. Yet the Talmud and the rest of the sages that are that have written their books hundreds of years ago, they're still best sellers today. They're still in every Jewish home today that's observant of Torah and Mitzvot. So this is one of the ways that HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows his involvement in the world where he makes sure to fulfill his own words to make sure that the truth stands. The truth survives. Lies don't survive. Lies don't survive. So this is one thing that you could also predict about all of the people that are going against the truth today. Their lies are not going to survive. Perhaps they may fool some people, perhaps they may fool even themselves to thinking that what they're saying is true. But beyond the, uh, the, the, time, the short time frame that Hashem gives them into this world, it won't survive. Now, the Chazonish gives us a few exceptions that are written in the Gemara. And he says that if a person wants to protect the honor of someone, whether it's because someone will think that uh, perhaps uh, uh, you know he, the issues between him and his wife, for example, if they ask you why didn't you come to such and such place, and the real reason is because you were on uh, uh, there was a date night between you and your wife, obviously saying that to anybody is inappropriate. It's immodest. So you could easily tell them, no, I wasn't able to. I uh, I was busy, or I was a uh, uh, you know, I had to, uh, I couldn't go that day. Whatever reason, you could even fabricate the truth. The less you fabricate, the better. In essence, try to be vague. But even if a person actually has to outright lie about something like that for the sake of protecting his wife's honor, he's allowed to lie for that. Another reason is if somebody asks you, how much Torah do you know? Do you know the entire Shas by heart? Do you know this Masechet? Did you complete this? Did you complete that? And the ways of the tzaddikim, the ways of the real Torah scholars, is to always minimize what they really know. Always minimize. So if somebody says, oh, did you, did you uh, uh, complete this masechet, Baba Metziah, Baba Kama, these big masechot that are regarding business, very difficult ones, you can say, well, I'm not sure, I don't, I'm not sure, I'll, I'll check, or no, I don't think so. Why? Why is that allowed to lie? Because again, if you tell him that you know all of the things that uh, he's asking you about, perhaps he's going to think that you are a lot more than what you really are. And it's certainly something that the people that actually do possess knowledge, do have, do real Torah scholars, try to run away from. You're never going to see a real Torah scholar call themselves a Gaon, call themselves a Torah giant. In fact, the opposite, as we learned in the previous Shulim when we told stories about some of them. The last but not least uh, reason to, uh, uh, that a person is allowed to lie is about hospitality, where you're not going to tell the world about somebody else's uh, hospital, uh, hospitality. If you were invited to some event, you invited to, to, to uh, somebody's house, and you saw that this person is a very good host, he uh, gave you your own room, or he's very lavish with the food that he gives, don't go and publicize this to the world like many people do today. People go in, uh, you know, uh, to anywhere and they publicize. They feel like whatever goes on in their life somehow has to become the headlines in the newspapers. This is not Jewish behavior. This is not something that the Jewish world 
uh, you know, applauds. This is certainly the opposite. Why? Because maybe the host doesn't want the whole world to know about his hospitality, either because a bunch of people are going to show up at his house, or some people are going to feel bad that he, they weren't invited, or a whole realm of reasons of why he simply doesn't want this to become public news. There are some people that do want to make their hospitality public, uh, uh, public news, and those are few and far in between, but certainly the vast majority of people that host people do not want their addresses and their houses and their hospitality publicized everywhere. So if you're invited anywhere, don't tell your friends, oh, by the way, you know where I'm going this Friday? Oh, I'm going to uh, the rabbi's house. Oh, really? Well, who, who are you going with? No, you just invited me. Oh, wow. I wonder why you didn't invite me. You just made a mistake. You just made a mistake. You just put the rabbi in a bad position. And on top of that, you made your friend, whoever you're talking to, you made them feel bad. You made them feel like they're insignificant. You made a very big mistake and you have to do tshuva for it. So these are three things that a person can lie for. Now, anything else is still considered a lie and forbidden. So now, the Chazonish is going to elaborate further. He says, the sages have elaborated on this in Perik Chelek. Perik Chelek is a famous part of the Talmud in Masechet Sanhedrin. In Perik Chelek, there are a lot of different uh, interesting stories, interesting details, but one of the things that it's famous for uh, is the fact that it discusses the issues of Mashiach, the resurrection of the dead, uh, the, uh, the end of the world, all of the gogumagog, all of those interesting topics that people like to talk about and like to do shulim about. Perek Chelek is the foundation of all of that information. But in Perek Chelek, there's more than just those few topics. There's certainly other interesting stories we learn from. And in Masechet Sanhedrin on page 97a, the Chazonish brings a story about one, that one of the sages said about himself, Rav Tuvia. Rav Tuvia said, if you were to give me all of the treasures of the world, I would not say anything that's factually incorrect. Meaning that he is simply not going to lie for any price. Doesn't matter how much you pay him. Now, of course, you're going to find some other people say make similar statements. People that claim to be truth speakers, people that claim to be honest. No, I would never lie to you. No, come on. Or they, the best ones are, to tell you the truth, and they start talking. Wait, hold on a second. So are you telling me that if, if you don't have that disclosure of to tell you the truth, I should assume you're lying? No, let me tell you the truth. To tell you the truth, this is actually one of the uh, uh, hidden messages that HaKadosh Baruch Hu literally instilled into the language of people to, on one end, make people more inclined to tell the truth, or at least remind them of it. On the other end, also remind us to be skeptical of anyone who doesn't tell the truth. Now, Rav Tuvius is saying, I will not lie for any price. Now, he doesn't have to be a, a, a rabbi for me to, to, to assume he's not going to lie. But he's not just a rabbi. He's one of the sages of the Gemara. So why do I need this statement for? Because he's going to qualify it. He's going to tell us, why he will never lie under any cost. Because it cost him. He says, I once lived in a place called Kushta, which in Aramaic means truth. City named Kushta. 
where no one ever deviated from the truth. And no one there would die before his time. This was a unique place where no one lied. And no one died early. There's another place that the Gemara talks about that no one ever died. That we'll talk about another day. But this place, because everyone was honest to the extreme, they got blessed that no one died young. And Rav Tuvius actually lived there. And he says, I married a woman from there and had two sons from her. One day, my wife was washing her hair and her female friend knocked on the door. I thought it wasn't proper to say where she was. I mean, she was bathing. So I said to her friend, when she asked her, oh, can I, can I see your wife? What are you going to say? Oh, she's not here. She's not here. How common is this? Somebody calls the house and the person that they're calling for is unavailable for different reasons. Either they don't want to talk to that person or they're busy with something or whatever it is. So the common answer says, oh, I'm not here. Tell the person I'm not here. Now, we already talked about how this is not good to, to lie last week. And in fact, it's also even more uh, uh, terrible if you teach your kids to do that, to tell people that you're not home, to tell people that you're not, uh, uh, that you're not there when you really are there because you're teaching them to lie. Rav, Kushta, Rav, Rav Tuvius did this one time. This is also showing us how objective and honest our Torah is. Where it's telling us about even the mistakes of the most righteous people that ever lived. To learn from them. And he's saying, I simply said, my wife is not here. Why? I didn't want to tell this woman that's our friend that she's in a shower. It's not appropriate. That's it. He says, after I said this, shortly after, his two sons died. His two sons died. Strange deaths. Immediately when they died in a town that no one dies early, the entire town showed up at his house and demanded an explanation for me. We have been here for many years, generations. No one ever died early. What did you do? Did you lie? I told him the truth. I told him what happened. Now you would think, okay, this town is full of people that don't lie, so they should be understanding. You know, it cost him anyway. I mean, he's the one that suffered more than anybody else, right? No. They asked me to leave the town, lest I bring death upon them too. So we so says the Chazonish. So we see from here that even a slight deviation from the truth is punishable by death. Now, we have to literally think about the words of the Chazonish, the conclusion that he got from this story. This is not some fairy tale. This is a real life story that happened to one of the sages in the Talmud. He's telling it himself. And the Chazonish is in essence giving us the conclusion what are you going to learn from this story okay poor guy lost his wife you know lost his two kids fine he had to lose his house too fine what else learn now today that even for a slight lie a person literally can get a death penalty from heaven that's how much hashem detests lies 
Now, of course, you see today people lying every day. The presidents, the vice presidents, the newscasters, the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the fake news, the real news, the friends, the family, everybody's uh, lying every other statement. But nobody uh, sees death. People, you know, if, if literally every person that died, uh, every person that lied was like in the city of Kushta, you'd have uh, body counts. Everywhere, you'd have uh, literally piles and piles of bodies. So how come? Number one, we don't live in the city of Kushta. Well, apparently over there, the, uh, the judgment was uh, much more stringent because everyone exerted so much effort not to lie. Number two, since there is a degradation of the generations, deterioration of the generations, Hashem judges us less harshly in this world. Less harshly doesn't mean that he doesn't eventually punish us and, and, and puts a person in Geinom if they deserve Geinom or Kafakela or Chibutakevel, all of those horrible places. No. Judging us less harshly in this world, meaning that Hashem doesn't judge us right away like he did in the previous generations. Where somebody went against Moshe Rabbeinu, he killed him on the spot. Somebody cursed Hashem, he killed him on the spot. This week's parasha. This week's parasha, Ba'alotecha, at the end of the parasha, the, uh, uh, the son of Shlomit Badivri curses Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu says, okay, what do I do with this guy? Hashem says, stone him, kill him in front of everybody. Kill him in front of everybody. Put, make sure everybody puts their hand on his head. Give him an opportunity to do tshuva before he dies. Because if he doesn't do tshuva before he dies, the death that he gets here is just the beginning of his punishment. At least if he gets the death penalty of stoning, at least that will take care of the uh, the punishment. So this is at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Somebody cursed Hashem and got a death penalty. Today, people have entire websites doing the same thing, unfortunately. But they don't die. Why? Hashem is judging us less harshly. Meaning... He's giving us more time because of our stupidity, our foolishness, our addiction to sins, our lack of knowledge and lack of truth, lack of knowledge of the truth. He's giving us more and more time and more and more opportunities. But the time eventually runs out for everybody. So Rav Tuvius is saying that he suffered by having two of his kids die because they lied. Because he lied. About what? About something personal. Something that seems to be part of the permissible lies. Where we said in the issues of modesty, somebody asked you, why didn't you come to uh, the shiur? And you don't tell them that your wife was in a mikveh because it's not appropriate to tell other people because then they start having all types of wild thoughts that are forbidden. That's allowed. So it would seem that Rav Tuvius did the same thing. But he didn't. He didn't. Why? Number one, the issues of modesty, you don't have to be so worried about it with women, at least not the women of his time. Number two, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. So we see how a Kadosh Baruch Hu was precise with the tzaddikim. And the conclusion that the Chazonish is here to teach us is that if you're about to say a lie. Think for a moment. Is it worth your life? Is this lie that you're about to tell people 
Is it worth your life? Is it worth the life of your kids? Chas v'shalom? Is it worth the life of your wife, your husband? And let's say it's not your, it's not a life. Is it worth your business? Is it worth your entire career? And these are the things that a person that doesn't have fear of heaven does not think of. People always ask, what is fear of heaven? Am I supposed to be afraid all the time of, of Gainom all the time? Technically, yes. That's what Shlomo Amir says. Praiseworthy is the person that's always afraid. But what is fear of heaven in practice? Simple. Before you do or say anything, think, is this the will of Hashem or against the will of Hashem? Will I be rewarded for this or punished for this? Is what I'm saying true or false? Is what I'm saying permissible to say or forbidden to say? Because even truth is sometimes forbidden. It's called Lashonara. You're going to say the private information of somebody else. It's true, but it's not public property. To tell people that somebody else is wealthy, to tell people that somebody else got divorced, to tell share other people's information is Lashonara, even though it's true. So just because it's true doesn't mean it's permissible. So... When a person thinks, wait, am I going to get punished or rewarded for this? Am I going to get a, uh, a heaven or hell for this? That's Yirat Shemayim. It's Yirat Shemayim if you do it before you say or do anything. If you did it after, uh, let's just say it's less Yirat Shemayim. It's more of, uh, ah, what am I, what's going to happen to me? <laughs> so a person has to know that the Chazonish concluded from that story a very, very scary lesson. He says, we see from here that even a slight deviation from the truth is punishable by death. May the merciful one save us, he says. Rahman al-Itzlan. That's what Rahman al-Itzlan means. May the merciful one save us. And they also said in the Gemara, in page, Masechet uh, Sanhedrin, another part of the same, uh, same uh, section, in page 92a, Whoever changes his words from truth to falsehood, it is as if he is worshipping idols. Where do we learn this from? The Gemara says from Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu, in Bereshit, Genesis, chapter 27, verse 12, is told by his mother, Rivka Tzadika, Rivka Imenu, go, and get a blessing from your father and pretend like you're Esav. Now, Yaakov is the pillar of truth. Yaakov, Ish Tamim, Yeshev Alim, he's a complete person, complete truth, sits in a, uh, in a tent all day learning Torah. His mom is asking him to lie. Yaakov responds to his mother, uh, Ima, I can't do it. Why? He says, this is a, uh, something, uh, if, if Abba finds out, he's going to find that I'm lying. I will be in his eyes like a liar. A metatea. I'll be a metatea. A liar. So, okay. Liar, fine. But where does the idol worshiping come from? The Gemara elaborates. We learn specific lessons from the Torah based on the type of words that are used 
to define certain things. If one word is used in one place, we know that any other time that it's used, anywhere else in the Torah, is to teach a common lesson between the two. This is one of the hermeneutical rules of the Torah. So the Gemara says, Yaakov says in Bereshit 27.12, I will be in his eyes like a metater, like a liar. And the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 10 verse 15, the prophet, many, 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 many years later, he is quoted saying to Am Yisrael, he's talking to them about idol worship. All of this idol worship, all of these people that make idol worship. This is one of the things that Hashem hates. The prophet Jeremiah is rebuking Am Yisrael that has anything to do with idolatry at the time. And he says, they're like an act of tatuim. Meaning that these idols that the prophet is calling a uh, uh, tatuim, this is in chapter 10, verse 15. He, uh, The prophet is calling it Tatuim. He's talking about idols. So the verse says, Kisheker nisko velo roach bam, Hevel hema maase Tatuim, Be'et pekudatam yovedu. He says, uh, I'll just read the whole verses, you understand. Every man is bereft of wisdom. Every smith is shamed by his graven image. For his molten idol is false, and there is no life in them. Their vanity, the work of deception, when they are dealt with, they shall perish. So the prophet Jeremiah, it says, Ma'aset Tatuim is work of deception. And it's the same word, same root of the word, Tatuim and Metatea, same root. So the Talmud the sages say, from here we see that if the words of Yaakov Avinu to where his mom is telling him to impersonate Esav, if they were not permitted by prophecy that his mother Rivka possessed, they would have been considered a sin that our sages related to as stringently as to the sin of idol worship. Meaning, Yaakov Avinu was not worried about lying, per se. He was worried about idol worship. Because he knows that in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the ultimate lie is idolatry. And therefore, lying is in essence considered in the same category of idol worship. So Yaakov Avinu is scared of being considered an idol worshiper. So that's why his mom, Rivka, is telling him, don't worry. A Kadosh Baruch who spoke to me and he told me, you have to do this. You have to do this. Meaning you have permission from a Kadosh Baruch Hu for this to happen. Why? Because Esav, his lies are so deep-rooted in his father, in, in, in Yitzchak, that there's no other way. There's no other way. The risk is too great. You have to lie. You have to, in essence, manipulate the truth in such a fashion where your father thinks... That you are a sav. Now, in reality, Yaakov didn't outright lie. He didn't say, I am a sav. 
He said, Esav, I'm, you know, is your firstborn. He broke up the sentence. In essence, stating that Esav is the firstborn, not that I am, uh, 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 I am Esav. Why? Because Yaakov Avinu was worried that he would be considered an idol worshiper. That's what the sages teach us. Further, the Chazoni says, in the Gemara and Masechet Sanhedrin, page 102, same section, the angel, that's the spirit of falsehood, comes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, leave my presence, because the speaker of lies cannot abide before me, as David Melech says in Psalm 101, verse number 7. Now, this spirit of falsehood is doing the work, you know, he's, he's doing a job that Hashem asked to do. To go and uh, to go confuse somebody in order to bring a certain judgment to the world. But in so many ways, that doesn't mean that Hashem likes him, he's best friends with him. Why? This is something that exists in the world. Evil exists in the world. It doesn't mean that Hashem welcomes it, he's friends with them. So, this is one of the places where the sages know what's happening in the heavens. It says, when a spirit of lies came before Hashem, Hashem says, okay, do the job, just go away now. Go away now. The Gemara in Maseret Babakama throws us a curveball. Why? Because now, we have learned lies are detestable, lies are horrible, lies are the opposite of the signature of God, can't lie about big things, needless to say, you can't lie about small things, with the exception of these few things, and even the few things, like modesty and, and the other things, even there you have to be very careful, because Rav Tuvia, one of the greatest people that ever lived in history, he lost two sons because of a lie that to us seems perfectly fine. But then the Gemara in Maseret Babakama, throws us a curveball. And we need to learn this curveball. That's what the Chazonish brings. He says, the Gemara brings stories of different times sages deviated from the truth. But for a permissible reason. Rav Ula says to Rav Nachman, when Rav, there's a whole debate. There's different rules that Rav Ula brought in the name of Rabbi Eliezer. And he's telling the students. And all of a sudden, Rav Nachman shows up. One of the Gdoleado. And he's listening in. And they talk about business law. And he says, if somebody died while owing somebody else money now it's, it's known both in the biblical law as well as the civil law that if he owes money to somebody else you have to take from the estate from what's left if he has real estate and things like that but the question is what about if he has a uh, slaves are slaves considered property now again, I know that some of the liberals that uh, hear slaves, immediately they think abuse, torture, you know, what happened to the African-Americans a few hundred years ago. Oh, this is terrible. This is... 
relax. Slavery and Judaism is a world of difference. I have a whole lecture discussing it. In fact, there's still slavery today, but it's not slavery like the Jewish world. It's slave like what happened 400 years ago to the African-Americans. Slavery from the Torah, it, quite frankly, there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. But people pretend like they're nice. People pretend to be uh, more civilized, even though they're a world of difference between civilized and what people really are. But anyway, in previous generations, up until recent history, slavery was very much well accepted among all of society. Today, it is accepted, but among the wealthy in society. The people that can't afford slaves don't accept slavery. The people that can't afford slaves don't even talk about it. Why? They simply have people do what they want. Now, slavery doesn't work like they does in the movies where you beat people up and you don't pay them anything. No, you pay people a salary. They send money to their family, wherever their family is. If you, uh, people love to talk about Dubai. Okay, people love to talk about how Dubai has all of these extraordinary buildings and uh, extraordinary things there and there's no crime and there's no anything. Yes, you're right. Dubai has a lot of wonderful things that they built over there. But one of the things that you have to realize is that that wasn't built by the rich people, you know, that, that, that control Dubai. They didn't go up there and put the bricks on the 150-story building and put the metal there. It was put by other people. Those other people, if you understand the way they work, how much they get paid, the risks they endure, and their lifestyle, you will see, oh, wow, slavery is still there. Wow, slavery very much is real. Yes, slavery does exist. In fact, there's slavery in America. A lot of people don't like to talk about it. There's, there's plenty of slavery in America. Plenty. And some of it is illegal slavery, which is the really ugly kind. The point being is, is that until recent history, slavery was very much a part of, I could say, commerce. I could say society. And only the the uh, the the liberal-minded people that pretend to be really nice say, oh, this is completely terrible. How do you go? How do you say such things that it's good? It's in the Torah. Obviously, there has to be something there. So you have to compare what's good, what's bad. Not everything is good, not everything is bad. Anyway, in those previous generations, when slavery was common, some of the ugly type and some of the decent type, some parts where people were forced to be slaves, obviously the ugly type. Some parts were, they're not forced to be slaves. Which is, again, it's their choice. Now, the Gemara says, some people owned slaves. And that was, in essence, their property. Just like a person has a house, a person has a company, a person has an application, whatever they have, that generates certain things for them, generates profits for them, generates uh, uh, certain uh, uh, products for them, whatever it is, they own it, right? Same thing with the slave, property. Now, what if the guy owns property? Can the person that is owed money take the slave? Take the slave as this is the payment. You owe me money, he died, give me the slave then. You have... Five slaves, I'll take each one of them. Each one is worth X amount of money. Okay, that pays off the debt. Can that be done? Now, Ula says, no, one may collect debt 
by taking slaves only from the debtor himself, not from his orphans. Meaning, yes, you can, if the guy was still alive and he wants to pay you the money that he owes you by giving you slaves, he can do it. But if he died, his kids cannot give you the slaves. They can't give you the slaves. That's what he said next to Rav Nachman. But as soon as Rav Nachman left, Ula says to his students, really, my rabbi, Rabbi Lazar, he says, you, actually, you can. You can collect the slaves as payment from the orphans too, from the sons that uh, took over the property of the, of the dead father. He's owned money from them. He can take the slaves from them. So the question is, whoa, hold on a second. What happened here? Why don't you say this next to Rav Nachman? Why did you say this right next to Rav Nachman? Why did you change it? What happened here? You lied. So the Gemara says, Rashi actually elaborates further, that Rav Ula's, Ula knew that Rav Nachman, he paskened about this, is one of the issues that he was very hot over. He was very, very vocal about this topic. And he was against the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, orphans giving the, uh, the slaves as payment for a uh, debtor for different reasons. And he even uh, saw a beddin, different uh, dayanim, chachamim, you know, rule that uh, they have to, uh, that somebody that was owed money has to be paid with the slaves. He went to them after the, uh, uh, after the trial. He says, you guys have to pay back, tell the guy to undo what you just told him to do. Meaning he just, he saw what, he heard what happened. He told him, listen, if you already gave him the slaves, you have to tell him to get back the slaves. Or else I'm going to force you guys, I'm going to pass in against you as the Gdolado, I'm going to pass in against you guys. That's going to come out of your pockets. I'm going to sell your houses to go pay back for the slaves that you gave away. Meaning he was very, very vocal about this issue. And Rav Ula, Ula knew about this. He knew that it was very hot. But, but he knew that Rav Elazar was one of those Dayanim. And he was, didn't have the same opinion. He didn't pass in the same way as uh, uh, Rav Nachman. He gave the slaves. He says, no, you have to give, give your house. Don't give the slaves. They're not. Why? Because they're, they're, the, the debate is whether they're considered property, movable property or not. It's all debate. Anyone that wants to go into the details of it goes to the Gemara Masechet Baba Kama. Now, so here we see that Ula knew that Rav Nachman would reject if he really said what Rav Elazar said, and he would debate him, and he would tell him all types of things, you're wrong in this, and Ula said, no, 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 listen, listen, I'm not in his level, I cannot debate him right now, he's going to give me all types of things, I can't handle it, let me just uh, escape this battle, let me just say the thing that he agrees with Rav Elazar, and the thing he disagrees with, I'll just say, no, no, I don't think he said that, so comes the uh, uh, Chazonish 
and says it must be so where there's there's a question there's a question about what Ula did why did he avoid the confrontation because it's an obligation of a sage to bring out as much Torah as possible and one is not allowed to hold back words of Torah who permitted them to avoid saying what has to be said and therefore it must be that Ula found in such a situation a danger that necessitated distancing himself from it so as not to put himself to the test if one was permitted to refrain from engaging in a Talmudic debate in order to maintain a measure of caution and diligence in observing of the mitzvot one is allowed to deviate from the truth see here the Chazonish elaborates and he says listen the sages when they're discussing something in the Gemara it's not like perhaps you talking about something with your friend for them anything that's worth talking about that means it's worth your life you're risking your life here and there are times even literally that the Bet Shammai and Bet some of the Talmudim will get into it over it of course they loved each other and eventually they married each other's kids to uh, to each other and they uh, but still each thing that they concluded to be true they felt that th- this is worth their life this is worth their life so Ula knew that if he gets into this debate with Rav Nachman it's not going to be good either he's going to lose the debate which could be horrible he might as well die then lose the debate or he could be uh, uh he could disrespect Rav Nachman why because he agrees with with uh, Rabbi Lazar and as a result of disagreement he could potentially cross the line with the Gdolador and and this you know and disrespect him better off die than disrespect him or worse he Rav, Rav Nachman can berate him can insult him and that can cause his Talmidim that are there to disrespect him and not want to listen to him anymore and that also that could cost uh, you know it's, that's all of their lives so he says too much is on the line here if I was next to my Rav if it was even one-on-one yes we could have discussions about anything you want but here this environment in the middle of a shiur there's other people this is not the time this is not the place let me just run away from this there's too much danger it's too much danger so here we see how the sages literally looked at every single opportunity in a precise way in order to make sure that they're doing the best they possibly can and mitigating any type of risk of violating the Torah it says in our Sidu part of the what the uh what the Mishnah says that Torah scholars bring more peace to the world so many times people think oh they bring you know peace to the world that means there's perhaps they like everybody they love everybody they uh they make parties there's hilulas yes yeah, sure there's certain things like that but the reality is that uh if you look at the life of Rebbe Rabbi Udanasi, the Gemara says that uh Rebbe didn't spend much time in his life uh uh giggling or laughing and in fact he uh asked people not to try to make him laugh why because anytime he had too much joy people would die because he had to make sure that people knew the truth and rebuke and truth and and he didn't have enough time for partying 
So how does the peace get created if there's no party, there's no laughing, there's no joking? By telling people the truth, by enlightening them with the truth, that actually increases peace. Because once the two sides of any debate know exactly what the truth is, that eliminates any doubts, that eliminates any you know, beliefs that perhaps something else could be true other than what you think or other than what he thinks. So one of the beautiful things that you have in the Torah is that you see many times that even when the sages debate each other, they don't debate in the same way that people debate today, where people debate today mainly, mainly to get a crowd, to get to win, to get honor. This is very, very different. In the world of the Gemara, if you look at the debates they have or you look at the, world, the words of the, of the Puskim, the way that they debate is a world of difference. A world of difference of how people debate today and when they have all types of videos of debates. World of difference. First and foremost, one of the most important things when it comes to debating is people know to have respect. This doesn't mean that they're not feisty and sharp with each other and sometimes, literally, it looks like it's like an outright war. But everything that is spoken is permissible. There are certain rules of debate, like rules of war, and there's rules outside of debate. If the debate causes you to think that you are better than somebody, to think that uh, the other person is, is, is nothing, is, 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 uh, uh, is, is, is some type of uh, uh, bad person because they disagree with you, already you see that there's something wrong with the debate. Even more so, there are only certain people that you're allowed to debate. One of the things that uh, people don't understand is that you're not allowed to simply debate anyone. One of the things that we've discussed many years ago when we had a lecture about uh, uh, debates, we talked about the rules, uh, different things of debates, is that you're not allowed to debate a heretic that's Jewish. You're not allowed to debate a heretic that's Jewish. So many times people ask, oh, how come you don't debate such and such? How come you don't debate such and such? Because we're not allowed to debate those people. We're not allowed to give them a stage. We're not allowed to even talk to them. Now, there are times that you are allowed to talk to people that have different beliefs, that are idol worshippers and so on, and those, there are times that there is permission to debate them. But when it comes to Jews against Jews, there's a very, very thin line that a person needs to walk on. If they are representing a different religion like Christianity, then we don't consider them like a, uh, a regular Jew. There's a permission over there to debate if certain rules are met. But if somebody is simply like a heretic where they don't believe that there's a God, or they don't believe that the Torah is from Mount Sinai, they don't believe that uh, uh, words of the sages, they're simply an apikos, like we've discussed many times with other people, those people, you can't talk to them, you can't debate them, there's no permission whatsoever. What you can do is you can rebuke, you do a public rebuke, you can reject what they're saying, you can certainly speak about them, speak about what they're saying, and get people to steer away from them. But to have a public debate with certain people, there's no permission to do that. So we see here in the Gemara, when they debated, it wasn't just any opportunity to debate, they would debate. Any opportunity to fight, they would fight. No, it was specific times, specific places, and specific topics, and specific people. Because even though you know this particular topic, who says that you know it enough to debate it? So here we see that Ula chose to avoid a debate. Now the Chazonish goes to the next, next uh, uh, part, next story. 
And the next point, he says, if the slight lie that does not harm anyone is hateful, hateful by Hashem, purposeful deceit, speaking with a barbed tongue, using lies, ruses and, and, and plots to calculate it to, to trick one's fellow man is surely doubly abominable. And the sages called this illness of the soul stealing of the mind. Gnevadat. This is another thing that the Gemara elaborates on and is in fact is uh, quite a bit, quite a bit that a person needs to learn about. Gnevadat. Chazuni says, we learn from here a few things. We learn that Hashem hates lies. Big lies, small lies, all lies. The few permissions are so specific that even when one of the sages made a mistake, two of his sons died. On the other hand, the other sage that did it, we know that this turned out okay. Why? If he didn't, they would have said so. But it was for the sake of the honor of the Torah. Not for his own honor, not for his own sake. So we concluded that lies are abominable, are disgusting, are rotten. Don't lie. Fine. But this is all lies that are small, unintentional, don't harm anybody. What about a person that is intending to lie? Meaning, he's calling this guy and trying to sell him something that he knows is not true. He answers his phone, hey, how can I help you? He knows that whoever bites that line is not going to be helped. In fact, he's going to regret he ever met him. Hey, hi, Steve, how can I help you? He knows that if Steve says, listen, I want this, this, and this from you, you said that you lend money, uh, you said that you could help me, so I want you to help me. He knows that if Steve actually processes that loan and he signs on those dotted lines, the last thing he's ever going to think is that loan was actually a help. He knows that that Steve is going to regret the day he was born once he realizes that he's paying interest that is simply predatory, impossible to ever pay back. Because it's so high, literally, Steve has to win the lotto in order to pay back the money that he borrowed. But it seems like it's a help. Why? Because it's quick. Because it's uh, without so many conditions, or at least it appears to be. It's available, and so on and so forth. So, the guy that's selling him this loan, or the guy that, for example, is selling a guy a car, he tells him, listen, this is a great price for this car. This is one of my best. Now, the guy that's the potential buyer, he thinks, wow, this is one of his best. It's a good price, he even says. He's believing these lies. How are they lies? Because the guy that's selling knows that this car is a lemon. He knows that this car is a piece of garbage. He knows that this car, if it survives six months, it's a miracle. If the guy really knew the truth about how bad the engine, the alternator, the, the other parts of the car are for this car, he would not only not buy it, you'd probably punch the guy in the face for offering it. He would get so upset at him. Why should I pay so much money on something that's junk? But he's not going to tell him it's junk. Why? Because he'd rather get his money and give him the junk than 
get his money and give him something good because he's a liar and there are literally endless types of business practices just like this where the person that's on the business end that's selling a product a service of some kind he knows to begin with that his business is corrupt his business is a lie his business is deception they tell you we have a software to solve the problem that you have your problem is let's say whatever the common problem is your whatsapp crashes every two seconds your uh you know your computer doesn't turn on your uh phone is uh, blinking we have a software for 36 dollars to fix those problems now you don't have much of a choice to figure out listen i gotta fix this thing might as well fix it from the comfort of my home then just go take it to a repair guy so you buy the software for 36 dollars you wait 14 hours until this thing downloads eventually you download it and then it says working and you look at it for another three hours say working working what is it doing oh whatever well at least it's fixing it working 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 and you have dinner you have lunch you have every you almost forgot about the phone you almost forgot about the computer but eventually you have to get it hey you realize, okay great it's finished you take your phone your computer start clicking away what happened nothing it didn't fix anything it didn't fix anything now guess what the overwhelming majority of the cases those companies that are selling software online they know that what they're selling is nothing they know that what they're selling is not going to solve anybody's problem aside from their own uh, personal problems with their the money that they're going to get but they keep selling it why because they figured for 36 bucks he's not going to sue me for 36 bucks even if he wants to dispute it it's going to cost him so much time yeah he's not going to spend it he most likely is going to give up on it which is really the reality of what happens most of the time now they go into that transaction knowing that their business is a lie knowing that the loan is predatory and bad for customers knowing that the cars are lemons and garbage and knowing that the computers are refurbished and not new but they're being sold as new knowing that the cameras don't work knowing that whatever service they provide is simply not really what people think they go into it that way says the chazonish if the small lies are so detestable by hashem are so disgusting in the eyes of hashem then what about people that actually lie on purpose in order to deceive people where they're using lies and all types of plots to trick their fellow man surely their abomination is double as bad as the other lies are these lies for sure you could already assume without even checking further their punishment their disgust from heaven is at least double at least double and the sages call this an illness of the soul stealing of the mind each sin the chazonish already told us is considered an illness of the soul you make sins that means you are spiritually sick you have a spiritual sickness why because each time a person deviates from the truth of god 
that means that a certain part of their body loses the right to exist because each part of your body is represented by a certain mitzvah. Okay? So you have 248 limbs. Those limbs get a right to exist based on the performance and lack of violation of certain mitzvot. Now, when a person violates those things, the spiritual part of that limb disappears. In fact, there was a, a doctor that came to the Gaon Mivilna, and he says to him, you guys say that there is a uh, 248 limbs, 365 ligaments, all these different things based on the mitzvot, calculated based on 613. We checked. Somebody just died. And we counted. We did a uh, something that's forbidden in the Jewish world. But this was a non-Jewish doctor. We did a calculation. It's 364. Not 365. The Gaumi Vilna says to him, go check this guy's life. Check background check you check the body go check the life how he lived his life i can assure you that he made sins with that body part the doctor checked and verified and went back to the gomi vilna and said you are a hundred percent right he sinned specifically with that body part but how what does that one thing have to do with the other the gomi vilna explains when a person sins with a body part slowly but surely that body part starts to die initially the soul gets affected but eventually the body can get affected this is why when the person leaves this world they go up to shemaim you don't have to ask the person what sins they made why they they could see it their soul it has holes wherever they sinned if they sinned with their hands there's holes in their hand they sinned with their legs, there's holes in their legs. The soul has holes in it. Different sins create different parts of the body part, the spiritual body part, to lose their right to exist. Why? Because emit, truth, is what gives them a right to exist. Violation of the truth loses the right to exist. So, the Chazoni says that when a person makes sins they are spiritually sick why spiritually sick like we said each time they make a sin they make holes in their soul they have different parts of their soul could be missing now their arm in real life could very well be here but as soon as they die they're walking around with no arm the opposite is true too somebody could be in this world where they don't have an arm they don't have a leg but their real body their soul perfectly healthy perfectly healthy so there's a type of sickness that's called gnevat dat stealing of the mind and the gemarad masechet chudin page 94a says that it's forbidden to mislead other people including non-jews and the gemarad there goes into great detail about the matter and the Ramban elaborates on it, on his commentary in Genesis chapter 34, verse 13, where after the whole 
horrible thing that happened with Dina, where the people of Shechem did not say anything when Chamor uh, raped Dina and imprisoned her. The, uh, then the, uh, the brothers, Shimon and Levi, after telling the people that uh, in order for you to uh, marry her, you have to circumcise yourself and all of your people. And they agreed. These Canaanites agreed. Now, Shimon and Levi really didn't mean it. They ended up going there on a the third day when the pain of recovery from a circumcision was the worst. And they ended up killing everybody. Now the Ramban says, the truth is that the people of Shechem deserved the death penalty. Why? They violated the Noahide laws, the seven Noahide laws. One of the laws is to have a court system. And seeing that the entire city knew about the abduction of Dina, and did not rule against that, did not free her, they all were considered violators of the law, they all deserved a death penalty. So what Shimon and Levi did was not against the Torah. They all deserved the death penalty. But yet, Yaakov Avinu did not agree with what his sons did. Why? Yaakov Avinu obviously knew the law, he knew that they deserved the uh, death penalty. So how come he was angry? with uh, Shimon and Levi, not because of what they did, but rather because of how they did it. Because they killed the men of the city after fooling them to think that they would allow a marriage between Dina and, uh, and, uh, and the people of Shechem, uh, if the people of Shechem and, uh, would, would circumcise themselves. Meaning this whole lie, that's what made it not kosher. Because the people of Shechem were convinced by Shimon and Levi's integrity. And they didn't think that they were going to harm them. And that Rabotai is what Yaakov Avinu rebuked them over. It's not that they killed them. Killing them, you're right, they deserve death penalty. They violated the Noahide laws, they deserve death penalty. The rape deserved the death penalty. They're not practicing the laws of Noah, which is a, uh, to have a court system deserve death penalty. No problem with that according to the Torah. What is a problem is that you didn't, didn't, didn't do it according to the Torah. You lied in order to get them to that position. That was what was forbidden. That's why, that's why Yaakov rebuked his sons. Till the end of his days, he rebuked them over this. So we see from here that the permission to lie is so minimal that a person, if the, the wiser they are, the further they are, they go from lies. Now, one of the things we're going to finalize with and to, to just get a, 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 an understanding of this is what the uh, Chazoni says in regards to Gnevadat, in regards to stealing of the mind. This is one of the places that a person really needs to know the law. Really needs to know the law of Gnevadat. Why? Because many times... People assume that if somebody else makes a mistake, they're allowed to take advantage of it. They're allowed to take advantage of it, especially if that person is not Jewish. The truth is, not exactly that. Let's just say that. It's not that. 
What is it? When we were having some of the lectures about uh, the evil, horrific, Holocaust-causing cash advance business and speaking out against it and how it's against the Torah, people would come, you know, people that are from that business would come and say, no, listen, they, uh, maybe the loan is not good because it charges very high interest. No one can really defend that. They initially, initially, they start trying to sell you some type of mumbo jumbo that say, well, listen, he can't get the loan anywhere else. That's why I'm taking a big risk. So since I'm taking a big risk, I'm allowed to charge him 80% interest. Obviously, this is all nonsense, complete nonsense. In fact, it's the opposite. The fact that he can't uh, uh, get the loan anywhere else and you have to charge him 100% in order or 80% in order to justify the risk means that you're not allowed to lend the money at all, Period. And if you're going to lend the money, you have to lend them industry rates, right? To make it more possible for him to pay it back. If he already is in such a terrible shape that nobody else will lend him the money, that means that he's a risk that nobody should take. And if you're going to take it, you have to make it easier for him to pay back. Not harder for him, but a higher interest. But obviously, the, the logic of thieves works, obviously, to their interest. Anyway, I spent nearly 20 years in the financial industry. I know more about this stuff than, uh, than they uh, obviously expected. Uh, I never did any of this garbage. Obviously, I was an investment, not in stealing. But uh, the point being is, is that when you tell people, listen, this is not allowed, you're charging them too much. So then they tell you this, listen, they're not Jewish. I said, it doesn't make a difference. You're not allowed to steal from a Jew. You're not allowed to steal from a non-Jew. Same thing. In fact, the Rambam says that when you steal from a non-Jew, it's even worse than stealing from a Jew. Because when you steal from a Jew... He's blaming you. You're the thief. When you steal from a non-Jew, the non-Jew blames all of the Jews. Even though all of the Jews don't even know he exists. Still, he blames all of the Jews. This is how you see all the people that hate Jews. They always blame all of the Jews for the acts of a few people. Like we saw with the Kanye West and the Farrakhans and all of the other morons out there that speak against the Jews... They found a few people that they don't like. They found a few people that are not good. They found a few people that uh, are simply not doing the uh, uh, things that are in the best interest of society or of theirs or whatever it is. And they decided that all of the Jews are like this. This is obviously moronic, but even Jews do the same thing. Just today, there was a lecture by uh, uh, Robert Freiman. He was doing questions and answers. And one of the people said, listen, I like what you're saying, but half the Jews... Don't act this way. Rabbi Ephraim says, not true. How do you know half the Jews? He says, there's over a million religious Jews in Israel alone. Do you know over half a million of them? No. Maybe you know 10, 20, 50 of them. Let's see your popular. You know 200 of them. 200 is not half of a, of a million. 200 is not half of a million. How do you know half of them? How do you just throw numbers like this? It's a people stereotype. And unfortunately, this is one of the Foolishness is of the world that is not going to go away anytime soon until Mashiach comes. But needless to say, in the world of, of, of stealing, they have all types of ways of rationalizing things. So when I told them, listen, this is too high, it's not allowed to charge interest, they came back with the, listen, it's high, great, but it's not my fault that they signed the paper. They signed the paper, I'm allowed to take whatever I want. They agreed to the terms. They agreed to the terms. And therefore, I'm allowed to charge whatever I want because the terms say I'm going to charge them 80%, 100%, 500%. 
If they don't read it, it's their problem. If they don't understand it, it's their problem. Right? Wrong. Wrong. Why? Ta'ut agoy, the mistake of a non-Jew, is only permissible for you to benefit from if you're not the one that's causing them to make the mistake. You see, this is the little small thing called alacha. When the sages say that if, let's say, for example, a Jew loses a wallet, and you find a wallet, you're a Jew, you find a wallet, you open the wallet, and it's clear that this wallet belongs to another Jew. The name, whatever it is, you see this belongs to a Jew, you are obligated to go return that wallet to that person. And if you can't find them, you can't take that wallet. You have to post it, you have to post somewhere that you have found this wallet. Whoever has lost the wallet and can give you signs that it's their wallet can call you or meet you, whatever it is. And if they tell you what the signs are and the signs match what it really is, you give them the wallet back. Until when? Until Mashiach comes. You're not, if let's say, for example, you find a wallet with $5 million in it somehow. Somehow $5 million fits in a little wallet, okay? And it has clear identification of a Jew. We're going to call him David Goldstein, okay? I don't know anybody that's named David Goldstein, but let's just call David Goldstein. David Goldstein just dropped off. Now, forget a wallet. Let's just make it more realistic. A briefcase. Briefcase with $5 million in it. $5 million with bills that you can tell that these bills belong to somebody. They have something to sign on them. The ID, ID the, the, the picture of David Goldstein is on it maybe or his name or something that clearly identified that this belongs to him. Now, you know this belongs to a Jew. Guess what? You can't take that money. You have to put it aside and wait until David Goldstein comes and collects it. What if he doesn't come? You can't use it anyway. What do you mean? But, but there's $5 million in there. It's going to go bad. It's going gonna, it's gonna to expire. No, no, it doesn't expire. Don't worry. Gemara says, a side note, there's a story. Rabbi Kharina. Rabbi Kharina. Rabbi Kharina ben Dosa. To show you how far this goes. One time there was a guy that came into town and uh, he left some chickens. And the chickens ran away and he couldn't find them. These chickens went to the backyard of Rabbi Hanina. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. Rabbi Hanina goes to the backyard. He sees these chickens. He goes, who's these chickens? Oh, somebody must have lost them. So, okay, so we have to protect them. What, can't eat them? No. Can't sell them? No, it's not ours. We have to put a sign that this belongs to somebody. We found these chickens. So, these chickens, they don't uh, stay doing nothing. They lay eggs. Next day, there's eggs. Can we, eat the chi- can we eat the chicken eggs? No, it's not our eggs. So what do we do with these eggs? Let them hatch. Before you know it, there's four chickens and eight chickens and 20 chickens and 50 chickens and 100 chickens. Before you know it, there's hundreds of chickens in the backyard. And Rabbi Chayna is feeding them every day. He's taking over the whole place. So Rabbi Chayna's wife said, what are you going to do with all these chickens? Because you know what? I have an idea. Let's sell the chickens and buy them some goats. And that way, there's less goats. So, he sells most of the chickens, and he gets goats to replace them. Fewer goats. Before you know it, the goats have babies. So you can see 
Years have passed. One day, the same guy comes. And he's passing by the house of Rabbi Chayna. Rabbi Chayna overhears him talking to somebody. He goes, oh yeah, this is the place where I lost my chickens. Rabbi Chayna says, oh, oh, oh. You, 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 you lost chickens? He goes, yeah, come, 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 come. What do the chickens look like? He gives him the signs. Ah, come, come, I'll show you the chickens. He goes, you my chickens? It was a long time ago. Come, I'll show you the chickens. Psh, the guy's interested. He goes to the backyard. He sees an entire field full of animals. The goats, the sheep, the chickens, literally a whole zoo. He goes, I just lost chickens. He goes, that's your chickens. All of that? All of that. All of that is yours. All of it is yours. So we see here, when you know it belongs to a Jew, you can't use it. Can't use it. Got $5 million in a bag? Got to put it aside. Put a sign. Get somebody to call you and tell you, say, listen, that was the briefcase. It was black. If you know if the briefcase was blue, obviously, you know, this is not the guy. Oh, it was brown. Oh, it's not you. Oh, it had uh, glasses in it. There's no glasses. You know, so you have the signs. Now, what if the loss was by Nanju? Nanju. The Torah tells us if the Nanju loses the money, you're not obligated to return it to him. But if you want to fulfill the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, the highest mitzvah you could possibly make, which is to return him his lost object, whatever it is, money or diamond or whatever it is, and tell him, listen, I'm a Jew, that's why I'm returning it to you, because I know God watches everything. That sanctifies Hashem that's worth a lot more than whatever you found. And one of the sages in the Gemara that uh, uh, found, he, bought, he, he sent this Talmidim to go buy a donkey. They went and uh, bought a donkey from some Arab, and this uh, donkey came, and on the way, they uh, saw that the donkey had a little chain on him. They opened the chain, they saw this huge diamond that the Arab was hiding in there. They were so happy that Shimon ben Shatach, the rabbi, is finally, he was poor his whole life, finally he's going to have money. They're excited, they came to Shimon ben Shatach and talked for the Rav, we found it, we got it, we got it. Well, what'd you get, what'd you get? We got it for the Rav. You're not going to worry about it. You have money now. What are you talking about? They show him the donkey. Show him with the, with the diamond. Because I didn't buy a diamond. I bought a donkey. Come now. I'm going to go with you to go return a diamond. And he took the donkey and his students, the Avdin, all the way to the Arab's palace. And he says to him, here you go. I bought a donkey from you. Not a diamond. This diamond is yours. The Arab says, Blessed is the God of Shimon ben Shatach. Because only a Jew, a righteous Jew, would do such a thing. If some Chinese guy, some Arab guy, some uh, uh, Mexican guy, some uh, uh, whatever, American, found the diamond, he's taking it to himself. Thank you, finders keepers. What are you talking about? Now technically, Shimon ben Shatach also was allowed to do it. But he wanted to fulfill the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. He knew that everything comes from Hashem. He knew everything comes from Hashem. So according to Allah, he was allowed to keep it. Allowed to keep it, but he didn't. But that's because he didn't cause the Arab to make the mistake. So the sages elaborate. If the non-Jew loses something, you don't have to return it to him. 
he makes a mistake, you don't have to return it to him. Unless you cause them to make the mistake. For example, you tell the guy, listen here, how much is how much do I owe you? Oh, I owe you uh, let's say uh twenty dollars. Okay, so you give the guy a uh, a fifty dollar bill. So he owes you thirty, right? Now instead of giving you thirty, he doesn't pay attention because he's busy with something. He gives you five hundred dollars back. He thinks he's giving you thirty dollars back. He's giving you five hundred dollars back. He's giving you hundred dollar bills instead. Now, if you didn't say anything, you didn't do anything. You can say, "Listen, I'm trusting that whatever you gave me, you counted, and uh, you're okay with it." The guy says, "Yes, you can leave. It's fine." But if you're the one that's confusing him and you're the one that's talking to him and you're the one that's trying to get him to give you more, you're not allowed to take it. That's called stealing. Needless to say, if you're telling them, listen, this loan is good for you. This car is good for you. This product is good for you. It's the best price. It's the best product. It's the best this and it's the best that. And for sure, it's going to be good for you. And for sure, this is the best for you. And all this lies that you know is a lie because you yourself would not buy it. You yourself would not use it. You yourself would not give it to anybody that you love. And guess what? You are the one that is manipulating this person to sign the document. Not the document manipulating itself. And therefore, you are considered a thief. 100% a thief according to the Torah. And no posek on planet Earth can reject that. Why? That's the Rambam. That is the Alacha. Oh, he signed the form. Signed, uh, he can sign the moon. Go sign the moon over there. Won't help you. Go sign, sign Mount Everest. Go to the top. Sign it over there. I was here. Won't do anything for you. Why? You are the one that caused him to make the mistake. You caused him to sign the form. You caused him to believe that this was true when it's not. Therefore, you are a liar. You are a thief. Therefore, it's forbidden. And that's why it's considered Chilul Hashem. So we see from here, Rabotai, the Chazonish brings up a very, very critical point that we all have to know if we're going to conduct business and everybody conducts business in some way or another, whether you're a rabbi or you are a businessman or you are a whatever you are. Everybody does business in some way or another. You buy things, you sell things. Everybody does transactions. If you're going to do business, you have to know the laws of honesty. You have to know what is permitted to say, what is forbidden to say. Because the second you lie... The Satan has you in handcuffs that are almost unbreakable. The Satan has you in handcuffs that are almost unbreakable. Once you get yourself into a business of lying, it's almost impossible to get out of it. Why? Because to truly get out of it, leaving is not enough. Stopping is not enough. Because you have to do tshuva for the mistakes you made. You have to return the money. Ooh, you have to become a small Moshe Rabbeinu to do some of that stuff. Especially if a person made a lot of money. So it's important for a person to know that a lie, no matter what the price is, it's not worth it. No matter how much you're going to get out of it, it's not worth it. Because in so many words, what you're doing when you're lying is 
you are disconnecting from God because Akadosh Baruch Hu's signature is Emet and therefore he cannot connect to you or to anything else that is comprised of lies just like oil cannot connect to water. No matter how much water you put on top of that oil, the oil will always separate itself. No matter how much oil you put on top of that water, it will separate itself. They will never be together. That is a liar and a Kadosh Baruch Hu. Cannot be together. So a person needs to know that a Kadosh Baruch Hu hates this. And therefore, eventually, the liars are the ones that get exposed. The liars are the ones that get the public shame. The Mishnah in Masechet Avot says that someone that sanctifies Hashem's name sanctifies it in private the reward will be in public Hashem will bring them great honor in public someone that desecrates God's name in private Hashem will publicize their disgrace you privately cheat people in business you privately cheat on your wife you privately do all types of sins desecrate God's name, eventually the punishment is going to be a public disgrace. Now, of course, everyone has heard of the public stories that have happened to the disgusting animals that call themselves humans and celebrities in Hollywood. I have a whole film about this called The World of Lies. The Bill Cosby's of the world and the other animal filthy pigs that took advantage of all types of people in a sexual manner. These are literally excuses of people. But there are real-life examples that I've witnessed with my own eyes. And unfortunately, these are the lessons that a person, if they don't learn from them, they're going to pay for it. There was one time a guy I knew, he was extremely successful. Extremely successful. He was in the plumbing business. I can't, you can't imagine how much money you can make in plumbing. Now this guy literally made millions and millions of dollars. And he lived the life accordingly. He had a very fancy house with all the bells and whistles. He had cars. He would gamble. He would do all these things. Now, when he did all of these things, many times he went on his private life and uh, his private life wasn't exactly in agreement with his private life. Meaning, he had a family and he had uh, something else. And as he's making the money, as he's celebrating, as he's having a good time, he feels like the world is his. The day came, and the world wasn't so much his as he started losing a bunch of money. Properties that he owned ended up becoming problematic. He found out that one property that he bought was an actual fraud. Things got, went from bad to worse. But he still had some money. And he still had, you know, his family. One day, his wife tells him, I'm gone. I'm not interested in you anymore. What? Married for 25, 30 years. What do you mean not interested? What are you talking about? No, no, I found somebody else. Found somebody else? What are you talking about found somebody else? We're married for 25, 30 years. And she tells him, I'm going to marry our accountant, the CPA, 
the guy who knows where all the money is, the guy who knows all the secrets, the guy that I was uh, very friendly with when I was crying over the fact that I knew that you were cheating on me with all these girls for all of these years, but there was nothing I could do about it. Now, I could do something about it. He thought that his wife is a moron that's also blind who doesn't know that he's cheating on her. All she was doing was waiting for the right time. The right time to take whatever she wanted because the problems were only his problems, not hers. Now, this was bound to happen. According to his mind, never going to happen. When he was going out with all of these girls and doing all of these things, top of the world. The second he found out that she knew, and not only she knew, the guy that he was paying money to, to, to figure out what to do with money issues and stuff like that, he's in on it, he's benefiting from it. Literally, his whole world collapsed. His whole world collapsed. Surprised he didn't kill himself. But eventually he understood. He had this coming to him. How many guys are living the same type of life right now in a Jewish world, in a non-Jewish world, where you tell your wife, I love you, but you also have a girlfriend. You also have somebody that you go see at the bar. You also have somebody that you see at the office. And you have these two lives. I promise you. In the name of the Torah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu eventually is going to expose you. Why? You deserve it. You're hurting a Bat Israel. You're hurting a daughter of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And you're literally living a life as if God doesn't exist. This Rabotai has to be exposed. Why? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu hates lies. You married her, protect her. Don't protect your interests and your lusts. Learn to live with them. And if you can't, get divorced. But don't live two lives. Don't lie to people. It's disgusting. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu hates it. And therefore, therefore, by default, anyone that loves Hashem also has to hate it. It's simply revolting to hear and talk and see all types of people living multiple lives. He has a girlfriend, he has five girlfriends, he has, she has a boyfriend, and today, Hashem Yishmo V'yatzil, you're getting it now from the women. The women are telling you, I don't know what to do, my husband, he doesn't know that I have my doctor, and I have my friend, and I'm my therapist. What? Literally, the stuff you never would have thought of, you thought that the guys were a problem, are now in the, in the women's side too. In fact, there was a recent statistic that came out of Israel about two or three years ago. It says that the adultery for the first time in history, in recorded history, is higher on the women's side than on the men's side. If you don't want to be together, get divorced. What are you lying for? But that's the thing. People want to have a cake and eat it too. They want the privileges. They want the money. They want the comfort. They want the whatever social privileges or whatever it is. But they want to give somebody else, whatever good they have to offer. This is a lie. A lie that eventually gets exposed. And all of this stuff eventually gets exposed. You see it. Every big guy that you would have thought this guy has a security team that's enough to build a country. Eventually his wife found out 
the lie that he was living with somebody else, that he was doing this with somebody else. All the celebrities, all the people that have all the fortunes in the world, somehow, HaKadosh Baruch made sure that their lies were eventually exposed. If he made sure that their lies were exposed, you could be sure that he will make sure that your lies will be exposed. That's why I tell you, as a warning, simply because I care about what's going to end up happening with those kids that find out that their father or their mother has literally been living a lie for the last 10 or 20 years. It's too painful for the kids. I've met some of those kids. When they found out that their father or their mother has been a liar, has been a cheater, has been this, literally those kids, they're, they're never the same. They're never the same. Why? Because it's painful. It's painful to one day wake up and realize the person that you respected, the person that you love, has been lying to you for the last 10, 20 years. It's better to simply say, listen, I don't want this anymore. I'm moving on. Oh, you don't like it. You don't like it. You don't like it. You tried to fix it. It's not fixable. You tried to do something. Okay, fine. But to go live multiple lies... A thing of lies will never live long. Eventually it comes out. And when it gets exposed, it gets exposed in the most horrific way. Generally speaking, it has nothing to do with love, these types of things. It typically has to do with people not knowing how to control their lust. Not knowing how to control their lust, not knowing how to control themselves, simply wanting to live like animals. And a person that lives like an animal has to be treated like an animal. Why? Because what's the Gemara says? Gemara Masech Psachim says that a person... That acts like an animal doesn't deserve to eat animals. Why? He's no better than the animals. He's no better than the animals. So this is one of the things that a person needs to know. Yes, it sometimes it hits home with certain people because they have this and they have that. Good. If you're hearing this, that means you still have time to fix it. Don't go another day without fixing the known lies that you know for sure are going to hurt people, including yourself. Don't go another day living a lie. Live the truth, and I can assure you, you'll be rewarded handsomely for it, both in this world and the next. Thank you very much for learning with me. May Hashem bless each and every single one of us for living a life of truth, even when it's perhaps difficult, perhaps requires adjustment. But most importantly, it is certainly on the path to be holy. Hashem bless each one of you, and we'll see each other again later this week. Call to Bachabat Zachah.